the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. As the inscription on the Roosevelt Arch at the north entrance into Yellowstone National Park reminds us, our national parks are for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. They are wild, scenic, and historic spaces that belong to all of us. But are they, in reality, exclusive places with reservation systems that aren't providing equitable access to the diverse population wishing to use the parks? This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Our guest this week is Dr. Will Rice from the University of Montana, and he has some thoughts about the functionality of Recreation.gov, the main reservation system used for public lands, campgrounds, and activities. In recently published research, which he shares with the travelers Lynn Riddick, he and his team evaluated one aspect of park reservations, camping, to see if the online reservation system offers an advantage to higher socioeconomic groups. Lynn will be back in a minute with Dr. Rice. Since 1986, national park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any national park visitor center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Based on feedback we get here at The Traveler, our readers are frustrated with the system for reserving campsites on public lands, including those with national parks, recreation.gov. Reservations are required far in advance for a limited number of campsites. Campsites often become unavailable at the exact moment they are offered up. Large numbers of no-show reservations result in empty campsites that could have been used by other campers. And now new research into the online reservation system is revealing an unintended consequence of online booking that may exclude low-income and non-white campers. With me today is Will Rice. He's an assistant professor of outdoor recreation and wildland management at the University of Montana in Missoula. He recently published research on the online booking systems for campsites in the national parks and whether they offer equitable access to reservations for everyone. Hi, Will. Welcome to The Traveler. 
Hi, happy to be here. Well, let's start with your position there. What do you do and how does your work tie in with your interest in camping and the outdoors? I teach and research around, as my title suggests, outdoor recreation, wildland management, a lot of wilderness management. So I teach undergraduate and graduate level courses here in recreation planning and and outdoor recreation management, um, wilderness management, thinking about the underlying social theory that underlies how we manage protected areas across the world. And I'm within the the, uh, Parks, Tourism, and Recreation Management program here. And we really focus, and especially in a state like Montana, on helping managers deal with really applied issues they're facing surrounding specifically visitor use management, tourism management, those sorts of things. And so my research in my lab, we work in national forests, national parks, uh, state lands, local parks, um, all really across the gamut of contexts in the park realm to understand the demand for outdoor recreation and how we can reduce the, the negative impacts that demand might have on natural resources through environmental degradation, um, and also how we can make sure that, that everyone has access to recreation resources and provide equitable and efficient access. Well, you and your colleagues published a paper a few months ago exploring how online reservation systems may prevent a broad demographic mix of campers in the national parks. And you did that by compiling data from mobile device locations in campsites. So we're going to drill into what you discovered. Um, But first, give us a bit of perspective on camping's long history of exclusivity within the national parks. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I'm less of an expert in that area. I'm not a historian, but I, I, I'm a student of camping. I'm kind of a camping nerd. And so there's uh, some really great books out there that your listeners might want to check out. The most recent one, Camping Grounds by Dr. Uh, Phoebe Young at the University of Colorado, provides a really, really beautiful history of camping in the United States, ranging from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. And that was a really eye-opening book for me because it, it dove into what camping was and how, how, how its origins influence its, um, the participation rates we see today. And so specifically, Dr. Young talks about camping rising out of this leisure class in a post-Civil War era, where patrician, New England, mid-Atlantic families were going to, to the Adirondacks, the Catskills to camp, um, to the coast to camp with their families. And as, um, As camping became more and more mainstream and as people realized that camping recreationally could be a way to to save money, to vacation affordably, there was some form of backlash from that leisure class trying to reappropriate this this activity that they were consuming conspicuously to showcase their wealth. Look, we're wealthy, we're able to camp in this extravagant manner. Um, And that, that history that Dr. Young provides really rolls into the creation of our national park system um, and the design of national park campgrounds. National park campgrounds really owe their original design to uh, Emilio Pepe Michel Maidiki, which is just a beautiful name. Um, and and he, he was an employee of the Forest Service and then later an employee of the Park Service who really designed the campground as we know it in terms of loops. Um, and he was pushed by the National Park Service to design campsites in a way that emulated suburbs. Um, so places that were being designed in a post-war era, especially to be places where people like myself, white, 
upper middle class Americans would feel comfortable. And so in designing campgrounds in that fashion, um, we see some of the first seeds of outdoor recreation as somewhat of an exclusionary activity and specifically camping in national parks being quite literally designed in the way that the loops were created to, to emulate cul-de-sacs. It just opened up the doors for, for exclusivity. Any stats on the growth of camping among different non-white ethnic groups over the years? Yeah, it's interesting. As someone who studies outdoor recreation and whose research, like an increasing amount of my colleagues, looks at, at equity and participation among historically marginalized groups, we're seeing the camping's kind of been this bright spot. Like I tell folks, camping and, and fishing are the two recreation activities we often point to to say, you know, these are activities that have relative representative distribution of incomes and ethnicities that are participating in them. And camping is certainly, if you look at, at I don't know the, the statistics uh, offhand, but if you look at the information put out by the Outdoor Industry Association, which releases participation rates um, within the United States annually across outdoor recreation activities, camping is, is, is fairly representative at large of income and ethnicity. But some research from the Resources for the Future reveals that in national parks, uh, campers tend to have um, higher incomes than, uh, than the, the U.S. population at large on average, which is not necessarily the case in camping participation overall. So we're still seeing, so while camping itself has evolved from this activity that was really owned by the leisure class in its early days to a place where it has really representative use across, across the public, national park camping has still lagged behind a little bit. I mean, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But first, I thought maybe you could describe to our non-campers out there the process of booking a campsite in the national parks. Sure, and it varies. So traditionally, campsites were almost universally available on a first-come-first-served basis. So you'd show up and you'd either wait in line or you would just pull into the campsite and grab a campsite that was unoccupied or a campsite that you know, you'd wait for someone to leave who might be leaving that day. That's, that's generally how, um, in kind of the early days of the national parks, how a lot has happened. Actually, in the, even before that, we didn't even have campgrounds. We just had places where people would camp kind of openly in parks. And, and because of ecological degradation, we created campgrounds and moved to these first comfort serves systems for the individual campsites. Today, it's a mix. So you may have a campground that has half its sites available on a first comfort serve basis and half of them available on a reservation only basis. Um, you may have a campground that has some campsites available two months in advance for reservation and others six months in advance. We're starting to see lotteries for campgrounds or campsites within campgrounds being rolled out in Yosemite, for instance, Yosemite Valley and, 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 and Yosemite National Park at large has, a, I think there's, you can, there's a number of ways to reserve campsites, which we really like on the research perspective. And I can talk about more about that, but Yosemite has campsites available two months in advance, two weeks in advance, um, two days in advance, or, or sorry, excuse me, one day in advance through a lottery or on a first come first serve basis. So there's there's a number of ways. And what, what the park service is, you know, really putting effort into is communicating the different ways you can obtain a campsite based on your various constraints and preferences. It seems like it might be hard to keep up with and uh, your thoughts on that. And then is recreation.gov 
pretty much the primary way to book a campsite in the parks? Yeah. So first of all, yes, recreation.gov is the is is where you you book front country campsites and, and a lot of backcountry campsites as well. Um, if they're available for reservation and they're administered by the National Park Service, other campsites, for instance, some campsites in Grand Teton National Park, as an example, are available. They're, they're administered by a concessionaire, a private concessionaire, and you might book them through their own website. Um, Everglades National Parks campsites, front country campsites are like that. But if they're administered by the National Park Service, they're going to be available on recreation.gov if they're available through a reservation or lottery. If they're first come, first serve, there's no need to, to go through recreation.gov. You're not going to be able to reserve it on recreation.gov. And to your, to your previous question about, you know, is this confusing for people? I think it, I think it is. There's really one of the things we we your listeners might leave here with a um, as a conclusion is there's there's really limited research on camping, which is really bizarre. So we don't know necessarily how confused the American public is by the allocation of campsites and all the ways you can reserve a campsite or obtain a campsite. But my notion as a professional in this space is yes, it it's probably is confusing, but recreation.gov does a, yeah, an increasingly good job of communicating it. If you go to the site, for instance, for Mather Campground, if you go to the, the recreation.gov page for Mather Campground in Grand Canyon National Park, it'll tell you the various ways you can obtain a campsite in that campground in a pretty clear manner. And that's that's really encouraging to see that um, as, as someone who's researching in this realm. And as a camper myself, it's really helpful to have that information at hand. Do you find it frustrating when you are trying to book a campsite? Um, I, you know, I don't know if I find it frustrating. I find it, I think I find it to be a really, whenever I, as someone who researches this, whenever I go to book a campsite, it's a very introspective activity because I'm thinking about, wow, I know a lot about this and it can be, it can be difficult in terms of you know, if I'm going to a place I'm unfamiliar with, understanding how campsites are allocated, um, that can be that can be a challenge. And I would say I'm I'm mostly like the rest of the public in terms of you know the, a lot of it's outside of our hands, and we're just we're moving with with management trends. And so more and more, the reservations I, or the campgrounds I'm obtaining this summer are through reservations on Recreation.gov, or if it's at a state park, it's Reserve America. I think everyone has had, you know, an instance where they've tried to get a campsite and they've been unable to, right? Or they've, they've, you know, whether that's happening on recreation.gov or you've arrived at a campground and um, hoping to get a first come first serve site, there's, there's none available. I think, I mean, I've certainly had that experience. I think lots of folks have. I think what's more interesting, like the anecdotes, is the data and like what it pours out. And there was a really interesting statistic released by recreation.gov in 2021, which stated for a popular campground, I believe it was with 57 or 54 campsites, um, you can have uh, 19,000 people all trying to book those as soon as they become available for any given day, which amounts to what's approximately like a 0.3% chance of obtaining a campsite. So I think the norm, when you have a 0.3% chance, if you're available at your computer on this hypothetical scenario presented by recreation.gov to obtain a campsite if your chance is 0.3%. Um, there's more people left without a campsite than with a campsite. And so those are the sorts of things that, you know, I think really as a researcher really get me thinking about, okay, 
this seems like this could be an issue. We should we should explore this a little bit um, to better inform management. So your research, tell me how you came up with the idea to look into exclusivity issues with booking. Yeah, it's a good question. So I guess first of all, um, as I mentioned, there's very little research on camping. You know, despite the fact that. Uh, Campgrounds of America reports that two-thirds of North American residents camp, which is a statistic that, that most people find pretty surprising. Um, so it's there's really broad participation, but there's very little research to guide the management of this, this activity. Um, I started researching this in 2017, and we published a couple papers with colleagues looking at really just like demand for national park campgrounds across the system, uh, forecasting that demand, and then what drives that demand in terms of what types of sites, what types of amenities drive demand for specific campsites. So that certainly contributed to this idea, um, you know, of these reservation systems, especially the really long reservation system, six months in advance. We hypothesized that some people probably weren't able to, to plan that far in advance. And for instance, a study we did in Zion National Park, we found that the average booking window for campsites there was over 100 days in length. And so we were like, you know, I wonder what portion of the American public is able, has a job or family obligations that allow them to plan that part in advance. Um, yeah, you don't know when you might get vacation time. Exactly, for sure. Yeah, lots of professionals um, don't have that, you know, leniency. They, they don't have the guarantee that they'll be able to take off. Or, and so that was part of it. And then part of it was reading, you know, like the book I mentioned, Camping Grounds by Dr. Phoebe Young, that was really interesting. And then that, that statistic that was released by recreation.gov about, you know, the, the chances of obtaining a campsite. And so all of that sort of combined into the soup in my brain, if you will, and talking to my colleagues on the paper, Dr. Jen Thompson, Jacqueline Rushy, and Peter Whitney, we decided it'd be really interesting to look at the demographics of people who were camping in campsites that required these reservations months in advance versus those that obtain that campsite, the exact same identical campsite to the one that might be just one loop over that was available only through reservation on a first come first serve basis. So people who just showed up and were able to get that campsite. And so we just were, the basic question and hypothesis was that people who were in the campsite that was obtained through a reservation months in advance would likely be of higher income than those in a campsite that was available on a first come first serve basis. Um, and when we went to kind of like dive into the literature, again, there's not much research. And the only thing we could find um, to help us, you know, prepare to answer that question was a U.S. Forest Service technical report from, 19, um, from the 1970s that looked at campers in California to see, you know, what portion of folks did have the ability to, what portion of campers had the ability to plan that far in advance? Like how far in advance did people have? The ability to plan it that far in advance. When I say that far, I mean like months, um, 80 days in advance, for instance. And it found that that not many did. The, the majority didn't have that. And this was again from the 1970s, so it's pretty data data. But back then, not many folks had the jobs that allowed them to plan that far in advance. And, and our, our thought was, well, the same might be happening here as well. So did you just look at recreation.gov, um, no other online booking systems? We just looked at national park campgrounds uh, available through recreation.gov and on a first come first serve basis. And the reason for that was one, national park campgrounds, you know, especially in iconic national parks like Shenandoah National Park, Dinosaur National Monument, 
they have really high demand for their campsites generally compared to, to some municipal parks um, or state parks. Some state parks certainly have really high demand, others don't. So we were interested in that and it continued this line of research we were doing in national park campgrounds. Additionally, all the data on campsite reservations uh, made through recreation.gov is stored in a publicly available database called the Recreation Information Database or RIDB. And we needed to ground truth. We used, as I, I believe we'll talk about, we used uh, mobile device or cell phone data, location data to understand where people were coming from so we could understand the demographics, their home locales. And we were able to ground truth that data with the zip codes provided whatever people made reservations on recreation.gov for those same campsites. Um, and so in order to make sure we had really conclusive findings, uh, we needed to be able to ground truth that using this really beautiful clean data set from recreation.gov called the Recreation Information Database. So you mentioned Shenandoah National Park and also Dinosaur National Monument. There were three other parks involved in your study. What were they? Uh, yeah, it was Colorado National Monument, Prince William Forest Park, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, Chickasaw National Recreation Area in Oklahoma. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'll be back with Will Rice to hear about his research findings after this short break. The beauty of lifelong membership with Interior Federal Credit Union is that we are here for you forever to handle any financial needs that life throws your way. Car loans, home repairs, investment accounts, trust accounts for the family. 99% of our members never visit a branch because of our 4.8 star rated mobile app. Make sure you share the gift of membership with your family. Start kids and grandkids with a Little Buffalo account at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NZUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. I'm back now with Will Rice from the University of Montana. Talk a little bit more about how you did this research. I know I looked through your paper, I read your paper, and it was actually sounded pretty complicated, you know, gathering <laughs> the data from, you know, mobile devices and so forth. Yeah, it is somewhat complicated. So I'll try to explain it as best I can. For instance, I'll, I'll start with my phone. <laughs> that might be the easiest way to start. So okay. uh, I have, I've probably right now on my phone, in the background of my phone, I have a weather app up, for instance, you know, I checked the weather this morning, I never closed that out. And I, sh 
I might share my location information. I might allow that weather app to, to, to know my location so that it can tell me what the weather is where my phone is. And that weather app might, might sell my location data to a third-party aggregator of mobile device location data. Similarly, if I have Google Chrome up on my phone, an ad running in the background might share my location with, with an aggregator. Um, the aggregator we used has over 100,000 different apps that they're, they're pulling data from. And these are, this is, importantly, this is data that, that folks have opted in to share in their location with. Right. Um, so also with my phone, it spends the night, most nights throughout the year on my bedside table here in Missoula, Montana. And so these third-party aggregators of, of this mobile device location data is able to surmise my common evening location they call it, or my home location based on where my phone spends the night most nights. So that's important whenever we're considering if we know someone's phone, if my phone went to a campground in uh, Shenandoah National Park, we would know, okay, this phone was here this night in Shenandoah National Park, but most nights it's in Missoula, Montana. So we're able to understand um, for the, you know, if you multiply my phone by the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who camp there in a summer, we can understand the general demographics of where people are coming from, their home locales, their census block groups. Um, and so we know through the US census data, we know the, the general demographics of, of my census block group here in Missoula, Montana. And then if we magnify that, and, and do like weighted averages essentially of all the campers within a campground, we're able to understand the demographic pool of campers' home locales based on uh, their mobile device location data. For the campgrounds we looked at, um, and importantly, in our the campgrounds we looked at had really good cell coverage. So we knew we were getting really unbiased data because we were getting data from, from the ma all major cell phone carriers. There was coverage for all of those. Um, so that's just a side note in terms of just uh, data integrity, but we were able to understand for each each phone that spent the night in any of these campgrounds and didn't move very much during the night because we didn't want people just passing through. We were able to understand where that device came from, what its common evening location was, in addition to what night it spent in the campground and in what loop in the campground it stayed. So from that common evening location, we we're able to understand the demographics of the home locale that person was coming from. So how did the um, evening location manifest? Was it by zip code? Was it by city, state? It's by census block group. And so uh, I'm not sure how many, it's, it varies on the amount of people. You know, we can, it's essentially one step up from your census block, which would be like your, it's essentially your neighborhood at large. In rural areas, it can be a much broader swath of, of land. So tell us about your findings. Yeah, so um, across all five campgrounds, we found that those folks camping in campsites that required reservations had higher, were, were coming from areas, home locales, with higher median household incomes than those camping in campsites available on a first come first serve basis. And in three of the campgrounds that we looked at, that change was that, that difference between the median household incomes of folks' home locales, camping and campsites that require reservations versus those available on first-come-first-served basis was statistically significant. So for an example, for one of the campgrounds, it was, it was just over $6,000 different in terms of the median household income of, of the home locales of people 
got their campsites through reservation versus um, first come first serve. Um, and to really underscore the how what six thousand dollars is, you know, like in terms of income in in this state, in the state I'm in, in Montana, that's about ten percent of the median household income. So that is that is fairly significant. And so again, we found that trend to be true across all five campgrounds, and significantly so in three of the campgrounds. We also wanted to look at at the racial distribution of campers in these campgrounds. Again, kind of guided by some of the the history provided by Dr. Phoebe Young. And uh, we found that in the one campground that we looked at, Prince William Forest Park, which again is in the DC Metro in Northern Virginia, the amount of campers that, or sorry, the, the proportion of white residency in the home locales of campers camping in campsites that required reservations was significantly higher than, than the portion of white residency in campers camping on a in campsites that were available on a first come first serve basis. Interesting. So if you're a novice camper, you know, another issue, um, you may not know how the booking system works exactly. Maybe there's some tricks that help you snag a reservation. You probably need some perseverance. Plus you might not have good internet service. So all in all, you may be out of luck. So it's not really a fair system for anyone, um, your research is sort of highlighting that to a certain extent. Do you address some of these other issues like internet service? Yeah, well, I mean, we certainly, I think when we're thinking about differences in income, access to high-speed internet, and you certainly, if you're going for one of these really iconic, like if you're trying to get a campsite in Yosemite Valley, for instance, during peak season, you're really truly going to need to be at your computer as soon as they become available to have that first shot prior to there being any cancellations that you might be able to squeeze in um, afterwards. So high-speed internet's a huge one, and it's a really big one too when we're thinking about rural Americans. So again, being mindful of the state I'm in, in the state of Montana, rural access to high-speed internet is, is, a, is, a, really pri- is a big priority area here um, because it, the access is currently less than optimal in, in rural areas. Um, so we want to be mindful about, you know, possible exclu- unintended exclusionary impacts of these reservation systems on rural residents, on low-income residents, on communities of color. It was recently I was chatting with someone in El Yunque National Forest in Puerto Rico about, you know, issues that campers, local campers there are having with Recreation.gov as well in terms of the language of uh, language barriers on recreation. Like, so there's all of these sorts of barriers, whether that's internet access or institutional knowledge or accessibility issues, uh, the ability to plan far in advance. All of those are, are things that, you know, I've talked with recreation talk about, they're super mindful of those things. Some of these things, you know, I think it's important for listeners to know are being addressed. It's just, changing these these kind of ingrained things takes a takes a little while too so um, as a camper myself you know I try to be mindful of of that and be patient but I'm also just really heartened by you know the work recreation that is doing in you know addressing some of these issues that have come up in the last year and, and gained um, gained interest I mean I know the New York Times just ran an article maybe in the last couple of days on on these issues specifically around the language barriers and recreation.gov. And I know that's something that I imagine they're really keen to address. So thinking about all those barriers and constraints is really key to the work we do in, in recreation research. 
And it's heartening to see the response we're getting to our research, especially from the agencies who really do want to address this stuff, which is, is always, it's kind of the highest praise you can have as a researcher is, is the folks that you're doing this for being on top of it and, and taking steps to address this. Yeah, I did want to talk a little bit more about that because um, you brought to light how the online reservation system has the unintended consequences of excluding low-income uh, non-white campers. And you mentioned talking to uh, recreation.gov. And I, I wanted to know who else will you talk to in national park management or elsewhere? Uh, who else has their eyes on your research? What else do you want to do with it? Where else do you want to take it? Yeah, it's a great question. The agency, you know, it's it's funny. Dr. Jen Thompson, who is a, a co-author on this paper, we were chatting. You know, we we publish, I don't know, we publish many articles a year, and it's interesting. You know, which ones get people excited or not? Again, all the works we're doing is really applied, generally, really like you know, for a specific park to improve management. But this one has gotten really universal interest um, here from our federal land management agencies. Um, and state agencies. I've had people from the state of Montana reach out to talk about, you know, best practices. I've been chatting with folks at individual national parks, talking to folks at the um, Washington Office of the National Park Service, Washington Office of the U.S. Forest Service, regional offices of, of the U.S. Forest Service. And I think Recreation.gov included here understands that, like, all of these agencies, including Recreation.gov, which is an interagency group, they understand, like, we've, we've known that these things are going on. We know that the system is not perfect. And having this data to, to really show some of the unintended consequences of these reservation systems has really, I think, built a groundswell of interest within the agencies of, okay, we have this data that really shows this black and white. Let's go, you know, address these things, which is exciting. Yeah, that's great. So what do you know about companies that you can sign up to get an alert. If you're a camper and you want to know the moment a campsite becomes available and you pay for this, what do you know about those companies and, and how are they disrupting uh, the system and making it inequitable? Yeah, I mean, those companies certainly exist. Uh, I think they've existed. I'm not sure how long for at least the last few years. And they, as you say, like enable folks, as soon as a cancellation is made, for a campsite that you've subscribed to, depending on the service, they might send you a text message or an email saying, hey, there's this, there's a campsite available. And for many of those those, those uh, services, there's a fee involved, depending on your ability to pay, that fee may be marginal and may be significant. But there's also, excitedly, um, for your listeners, there's now a free service that's available called Camp Flare that uh, is doing the same thing for free, just asking for donations to essentially pay for the upkeep. I think it's, I, I, <laughs> I'm not going to uh, fully endorse the Camp Lair, but it is a, it's it's unique in that it, in, especially when you think about equity and that there's no cost involved, it's on a donation only basis. I think it's run by two college students who wanted to attack this issue, which is really exciting. Again, it hasn't been around as long as some of the proprietary services. Um, so we're seeing movement in the right direction on that end as well. I think we're seeing especially young people, you know, rise up and say, hey, we have the skills to, to help contribute to equity on these grounds. And it's called Camp Flare. It's an app. I think it's, it's just a website. Yeah. Camp Flare. 
Well, is there any future research that will build onto your findings? Yeah, um, certainly. So right now, we're exploring a variety of questions um, in kind of the beginning stages as we've we've gotten feedback from managers about what would be helpful moving forward for, for them to know. A lot of what we're doing right now is listening to the agencies um, and hearing their thoughts on our research, listening to to recreation.gov and their thoughts on our research and, and, and thinking about what context would be interesting to look at next. You know, I think one thing that's not going to come out of our research is, you know, the perfect way, the perfect mechanism to allocate campsites that just doesn't exist. And that's, that's what makes this such an interesting problem from a research perspective is that this is a super complicated issue of how do we allocate these things that are of just crazy demand. I was on a radio show a couple of months ago and, you know, I, did, I likened these popular national park campgrounds to like, they're harder to get into than like Beyonce tickets or to a Beyonce concert, right? Like they're, they're some of the most, you know, exclusive tickets you can get in the world is to, oh. to camp in a national park campground. Some of them that are, you know, really iconic and, and difficult to get into. And so I think, there's no way we can allocate these public goods. We can't just raise the price, right? That would be um, inequitable for a public good. And so that's what makes it really interesting. So right now we're focusing our efforts on developing guidelines, best practices for campground managers um, in whether that's at a municipal to a national federal level of how to, how to improve and make allocation of campsites more equitable while not sacrificing efficiency, understanding there's no perfect solution, but we're trying to, to help us get there. And a big part of that is um, in, in improving equity while not sacrificing efficiency is thinking about how we can diversify the ways we allocate, diversify the mechanisms we use to allocate campsites. So for instance, as I mentioned earlier, some campsites or campgrounds offer campsites on a first come first serve basis, and a reservation only basis. And that's, you know, that's diversity of how we're allocating it. That be, meets different people's preferences. People who need international travelers who need to plan six months in advance and have the security of knowing they'll be at that campsite. They can make that six month in advance reservation while those who are on a family road trip that's less scheduled can still potentially get that first come first serve site. So we're trying to think through best practices based on, on what the research tells us. Well, it sounds like you're doing exciting work. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Oh, I don't think so. I would just, I'd love to leave your listeners with the confidence that there are extremely dedicated people in our National Park Service, including the folks at Recreation.gov who are at the National Park Service and other agencies and the, and the folks at Booz Allen Hamilton who are behind Recreation.gov. They're really talented, smart, caring people who are really driven to address these issues. And so, you know, the frustrations that have been aired about how difficult it is to get a campsite, uh, especially for some folks, they're well aware of that at a national level. And it's really exciting as a researcher and lover of national parks to see kind of under the hood and how, how the National Park Service is working to improve and make this more equitable and how they're allocating campsites and also how they're designing campsites. Will, thank you for your time today. I think it's safe to say we're all in favor of an equitable system of accessing national park campsites. 
and certainly the reservation system should be easy and consistent for everyone. So please keep us posted on your research and what you find down the road. Thank you so much, Lynn. Uh, it was really a pleasure chatting with you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. It's hard to believe, but the end of August is in sight, which in theory means the high summer vacation season is coming to a close for those whose travel schedules are dictated by school calendars. Hopefully we all can find a break or two in the coming months to get back into the parks for some R&R. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.